This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, which is now out in paperback. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. Among activists, journalists, and politicians, the conversation about how to respond to and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results, either alone or in combination. The core of the problem must be addressed, the nature of modern policing itself. This book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to a decrease in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I've done a lot of interviews this year exploring how the left should approach electoral politics. Movements, of course, are absolutely critical. But so is state power, something that's hard to win and easy to make all sorts of horrible messes with. Without movements, politicians betray us. Without elected officials, our enemies make and enforce the law. This week and next, I'm airing interviews examining two different left approaches outside of DSA. Next week, I'll post my interview with Shama Sawant, a member of the organization Socialist Alternative, elected to Seattle City Council years before this current socialist moment had taken hold. Today, I'm interviewing three members of Reclaim Philadelphia, an organization that emerged from the Bernie 2016 campaign in Philly and has since then, in a remarkably short amount of time, played a key role in getting Larry Krasner elected district attorney, effectively won a state legislative seat, and taken over two Democratic wards in the city. Much of the debate on the left over how to engage in electoral politics revolves around how to relate to the inside and outside of electoral politics as they currently exist. In other words, how to approach the unfortunate reality of the Democratic Party in a two-party system. Reclaim Philadelphia brings an outsider perspective and base to a hard-nosed insider game. By contrast, Sawant and Socialist Alternative insist on a sharp break with the Democratic Party. All believe that leftists in elected office will fail to make change without organized cities, neighborhoods, and workplaces. 
My guests today are Nikhil Saval, Rick Krajewski, and Amanda McElmurray. Nikhil is a founding member of Reclaim Philadelphia and the leader of the city's Democratic Second Ward. He is also a co-editor of N Plus One, making him likely the first person in the history of the world to simultaneously run a popular literary magazine and a small corner of an urban democratic machine. Rick is an organizer for Reclaim Philadelphia's Mass Liberation Campaign, which seeks to end mass incarceration through issue wins in the leadership of formerly incarcerated people. Amanda is a founder of Reclaim Philadelphia and currently its lead organizer. She was a delegate and field organizer for Bernie 2016 and the manager of Elizabeth Fiedler's campaign for state representative. She's a native Philadelphian and has a dissident opinion about what sort of cheese should be slathered upon a steak. Before we get started, if you listen to this podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We are, of course, a Jacobin podcast, but what you might not know is that we are also entirely financially independent. In other words, I can do this for a living and pay my producer and for all of the overhead only because of support from listeners just like you. If you contribute $5 a month, you get access to our newsletter. If you contribute $10, I'll send you a copy of either Assad Hader's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. If you can afford to, please take a quick moment right now and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig so that we can keep this show up and running for the long haul. Okay, here's Nikhil Saval, Rick Krajewski, and Amanda McElmurray from Reclaim Philadelphia. Nikhil Saval, Amanda McElmurray, and Rick Krajewski. Welcome to The Dig. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Let's start where Reclaim Philadelphia starts, which, if I understand it correctly, is at the end of the Bernie 2016 campaign in the city. How was it that you all managed to come together so quickly? I think before Hillary Clinton was even officially made the nominee at the DNC, which was in Philadelphia that summer. So all of us were involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign in Philadelphia to one degree or another. So I was a heavy volunteer for Sanders and ran a a campaign and canvassing out of my house. Uh, Amanda, of course, was on staff at the campaign. Lev Hirschhorn, who is our statewide organizer, um, is was also the he was in charge of field for the city. So and then there were just a number of us who had had gotten in touch either through staffers or volunteers and and we just wanted to keep the band together essentially that we had had an incredible experience in the city i mean bernie lost of course he lost a lot in philadelphia but we had in i mean i just speaking for myself in my own experience just canvassing and canvassing sort of relentlessly one experience the sense that there was this deep progressive movement 
this majority essentially that was that we wanted to keep organizing and that was sort of waiting to be organized yeah and you know there had been organizing i mean there had been but there was just a lot was awakened i think and people you know it was a very strange experience for me i thought until i started canvassing that my fascination with Bernie Sanders was this private, strange socialist fantasy. And then you end up speaking to people and they have the same fantasy. And so you get together and you enact your fantasies. And that, and that, that's, that struck me as what organizing was. Um, I would add, yeah, I would add to that and, and say, um, so I was a delegate for Bernie and I also ran the South Philadelphia field office, which was the highest volume office in the entire state, which I'm very proud about still. Um, and we had this vision around like a politics that could work for us. And we knew that as it stood, the Democratic Party was not really like heeding the call of working people, of people of color, of women, of people with disabilities. Um, and we, we knew that there was like this vacuum and this opportunity to really transform what is politically possible. So um, we saw an opportunity around the DNC um, and we did our first campaign that summer with the DNC host committee and we had a transparency campaign and demand that, that they uh, reveal their donors. Um, and ultimately they, they didn't reveal, reveal their donors, but it gave us like invaluable organizing experience and an opportunity to do a series of direct actions, um, where we transformed the entire, um, media narrative around what was happening with the DNC. Um, if you compare it to the RNC, all of the same people were donating and the same corporate entities were controlling the narrative, um, and, For the DNC, there were a lot of articles and media coverage around why that was not acceptable. And you didn't see that for the RNC. And I think that was a direct result of the work that we were doing. We also knew that there was this momentum happening and we like kind of we kind of felt the winds and felt that like in our guts and in our souls that people want and need change. And we knew that like if we didn't do it, nobody else would. And I would just add to that. Because I actually was not part of the Bernie staff uh, getting involved. And so I was one of the people that were caught in that wind. Um, and I don't know, one of the debates with Reclaim is, you know, which wave of Reclaim I, I was a part of. Was it second wave? Was it third wave? Um, but I think, you know, it really, I feel like it really does um, illustrate the the resonance that, that the message Reclaim had um, really. It's straight striking with, with people in Philadelphia that, you know, I came to a meeting and now I'm one of the organizers. Amanda, to follow up on something you said, it, it it seems really, it's very interesting and seems really smart that basically the first thing that Reclaim did was channeling this moment of, of national, this anger at Clinton and the DNC that was really nationwide and pervasive amongst Bernie supporters everywhere into this concrete local issue because the DNC was in Philadelphia able to highlight both the sort of web of corporate power and influence that runs this city mm-hmm. and that also runs the Democratic Party. It's a it's a it was a, like a neat way to like I don't know if you guys realized where Reclaim was heading um but it seemed like a really smart way to start it. Yeah, I I think in retrospect we realize all of that now and I think we realized that to a certain extent at the time but we knew that like that was where the momentum was going and that was what we all felt need it like was possible and also need it to be done 
Um, and we kind of like harnessed on this natural national energy because we were also a part of it. And I think the national picture is also a representation of the local picture and it like filters up and down. So we knew that all around the country, people were saying that like, we want a democratic party that prioritizes the needs of working people. We want one that prioritizes the needs of students and workers and people of color. And that's not happening right now. So we use that as an opportunity to, to really like transform the narrative and use that basis and momentum to go through like a two month long process where we figured out what did we want reclaim to be? What did we want um, our organization to do? And we ultimately decided that we wanted to be a multi-issue big tent organization that does direct action and electoral work and issue campaigns. That's all rooted in this, this idea of transformation and that like what is happening now is not the only thing that is politically possible. Before we get any further, let's quickly lay out the the victories that you've had so far so that listeners have a, a glossary of sorts for everything we're going to be discussing from here on out. So let's get a reclaim. A let's get a reclaim timeline. You know, I think I think I, I, Amanda already enumerated this, but I think we did have a, a narrative victory uh, in the lead up to the DNC. I, I, and I would just, you know, that's that was in the sense that we there was a lot of press around the host committee. I mean, that was the real target. It was the, it was where the donors were coming from who fund the the convention in some sense, and that was just a broader. It, in a way, it was actually about a broader picture of who controls the Democratic Party and what would need to change in order to to change that. So and I the think city we, as a sort of microcosm of that. Precisely, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I think we, I think our biggest sort of victory in the spring was the. Our, we endorsed. We were one of the first organizations to endorse Larry Krasner uh, in 2017. Uh, we played some role in um, getting him, helping to get, helping him to get in the race. Um, that was that was that was you know some encouragement on our part. And we, you mean Larry w- didn't uh, start his career believing that he was one day going to become district attorney of Philadelphia? <laughs> <laughs> it was a long game. It was, yeah. Um, so that was, you know, that, that was, and that was defining, I would say for, I mean, for, for us, certainly for me, I mean, I thought that was an extraordinary experience. Um, and that, you know, that, that was a huge mobilization around, around that, around that race. Mm -hmm. Um, just to give a, a overarching, um, so we've run maybe a dozen or more campaigns at this point. Um, After the DNC campaign, we were involved in the national movement around Standing Rock, and we did some actions where we shut down banks in Philadelphia, which was really exciting and fun. And then uh, Up Against the Law Legal Collective, and Larry Krasner actually defended us, which is one of the first places that we met Larry and Jody Dodd, who doesn't get nearly as much credit as she needs. Jody's a legend. She's amazing, and she deserves all of the credit all the time. Um, and after that, we were part of a coalition to um, divest Philadelphia's payroll from Wells Fargo, um, and that was successful. And I forget the exact amount, but they divested their entire payroll system in the amount of $3 billion? I think that might be $3 billion. Um, I could be wrong on that number. Um, and then we were part of the Our City, Our Schools Coalition, which organized to get rid of the School Reform Commission in Philadelphia. Which is gone. 
which is now gone. So we were victorious in that. Um, we also endorsed um, our first candidate that we ever endorsed was Joe Hellenstein in the fall of 2016. And he was a uh, progressive Democratic candidate running against a uh, long-term, two-decades incumbent in Northeast Philadelphia, um, a district that's overwhelmingly Democratic, but always goes Republican. This is Taylor's seat? Yes, Representative John Taylor. Um, And Joe Hohenstein lost that time and ran again, and we endorsed him for the second time, and, and he is now likely to win that race this time around. Um, And then we also played a role in building out the infrastructure. I personally was uh, Elizabeth Fiedler's campaign manager. Um, She is the uh, Democratic elect uh, in the 184th district. So we built out that campaign, built the You mean she won the primary and there's... It's a seat that she's going to win in the yes, general because yes, thank yeah. you for clarifying that. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, also we've now endorsed um, several other Democratic candidates. So, and uh, yeah, Rick. Um, yeah, I just wanted to revisit the the victory around Krasner and just really like illustrate how much that's reverberated in. I mean, obviously, there's been national um, attention to this and to this idea of DAs being such a pivotal decision maker in criminal justice reform, but even within Philadelphia, just thinking about the narrative shift and the things that are possible around criminal justice reform and have been wins even after that. So um, one of the things that's emerged after Krasner won is this uh, grassroots coalition called the Philadelphia Coalition for a Just District Attorney. Um, And that's a coalition of like 20 plus organizations um, you know, Reclaim is a part of it. Uh, Juntos is immigrant rights group is a part of it. Media Mobilizing Project. A lot of um, old uh, community organizations on the left. Is Power? Power is also involved. Yep. Which is a uh, interfaith, interfaith um, yeah. rooted in black churches in Philadelphia. Yeah, mm-hmm. black and just generally trying to organize like clergy and congregations. Um, and uh, so, you know. Through that coalition created this platform of these demands around, you know, reforming and ending cash bail, around reforming the way we we sentence youth and juveniles, um, thinking about restructuring diversion programs around immigrant rights and considering the the consequences uh, around prosecution with people that have um, an immigration status. And so uh, one of the recent wins that um, we actually got around the immigration uh, policy specifically was there's this database, the PARS database, um, that the DA uh, office had access to, um, where you know whenever someone was picked up by the police, they're entered in this database, and then the prosecution uses that. Um, but ICE also had access to this database, and so through that, they were able to um, basically guess the immigration status of people. Actively who, monitor anyone active, coming into the system. Right, exactly. Um, and then if they... Uh, had uh, you know immigrant status undocumented, they would immediately take them and, and deport them. Um, and you know one of the first demands we had that was you know created through this coalition and also through the community organization Juntos was to get Larry to commit to declining to continue that contract with ICE. Because he he was one of I think three votes. Yes, it was on that. It was the mayor and Krasner DA and then the first and judicial the district. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe. Um, and so. If two of the three decided to decline renewing the contract, then it would it would be it wouldn't be renewed. Um, so we had gotten Krasner to commit to that. I think in maybe 
February of this year, January, like really early on. And then there was the recent campaign around Mayor Kenny that was being led by Juntos and a bunch of other organizations to also get Mayor Kenny to commit to ending the contract as well. Um, and the so, fact that Krasner had first also yes. put a lot of political pressure on Kenny, I it imagine. It did. Yeah. And, and in fact, yeah, Krasner, I believe, like also spoke with the mayor and tried to convince him to also commit to not renewing the contract. Um, so just kind of, I just really wanted to illustrate the dividends that have been coming out of that that victory of Krasner and just like what's possible around around criminal justice reform. I want to talk more about criminal justice later. Um, before, a little bit more on like the nitty gritty of, of organization building and organizing that you all have done. Um, can you sort of step by step through this, I guess, two-year process at this point of, of organization building, explain how you organize to allow for each successive victory, how you, how you planned along the way, taking particular actions, assessing capacity, and then building and mobilizing that capacity so that you could identify these these achievable goals and and win them because it's quite an impressive winning streak in such a short amount of time. So I think a lot of my listeners out there would really just like to understand concretely how you plan and build. We have a model that focuses a lot on leadership development um, and investment in leadership. And we, we constantly actually have this question of capacity. And we, as an organization, have grown really quickly. So we're constantly have, having to reevaluate what our capacity actually is. Um, and our capacity varies throughout the city as well. So in South Philadelphia, we have an incredible amount of infra- uh, leadership infrastructure. We um, now have two Reclaim Philadelphia leaders who are ward leaders. Nikhil yeah, we didn't is touch one on that yet. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Adams Rax is another one of them. Um, so in different parts of the city, we have different capacity. We also have like a huge amount of membership in West Philadelphia. So we kind of um, do a strategic analysis based on how many people we have, how many leaders we know we can get to engage in different campaigns and races. Um, and a lot of the work that we do is also coalitional. Like reclaim a lot of these campaigns we haven't done on our own. Yeah. Um, so like for the Our City or Schools Coalition, um, we are a member of that, but we're not the ultimate like an only driver of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially I think why we've been so successful is because of our, our deep focus on leadership development and investment. And we use a really relational form of organizing um, where we push each person to think about their own deep personal stake, what it is they want to see in the world, what their vision for the world and for themselves as leader is. And we utilize our resources to support them in that and to push them and say like, hey, you, you're telling us that, Nikhil, you want to be ward leader, but maybe you're not on track on that right now. So we kind of like identify and invest in, not that that actually happened, but um, <laughs> we because, kind of identify. The he's impeccable. Ward leader. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. He is the ward leader. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but we have we have like first act, first official act. <laughs> MF. <laughs> is that on your business card? <laughs> um, but we have we also have a really huge culture of accountability. We say you say you you want to do this thing, and maybe you're not right now doing this thing that you're telling us. Um, so let's figure out and diagnose the reasons why. Um, so we hold each other accountable and we deeply invest in each other. And we also... Because um, I think a lot of organizations that I know of that are trying to build capacity, like a big question is just sort of like 
figuring out what your capacity is, who your members are, and then plugging people in correctly and ensuring that there's follow through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where the accountability question comes in. Um, So every mass meeting that we have, we have commitment cards where people commit to canvassing at such and such day at such and such time. And we call them and we follow up with them two days later. And then we call them and follow up with them. We we aim to confirm people three times. So um, what we see from this is that like our flake rates are really low. People who say they are coming to do things and then just don't show up. Um, And we also really invest in like building deep relationships with all those folks so they're not just volunteers tiers, but we're building them as leaders. And when you say we, and you're speaking of leadership, I assume, um, how do you formalize leadership within the organization and how, and, and who, how do you ensure that leaders aren't flaking? So I think like one of the things that in, in addition to accountability, um, we are really clear about like what we're asking people to do. Um, I think a lot of times what the reason people flake or why they may not necessarily like step up to what you have this, you know, this vision you have for them is because you're not actually being explicit about what you want them to do. Um, so in reclaim, we're very clear about like, I have this vision for you as like a leader in your neighborhood in South Philadelphia. I think that looks like you having one-on-one conversations with like two people a week where you can build the base of X amount of people that can then mobilize over canvassing, right? And like being very concrete. And here's how I'm going to help you actually craft that vision, right? Because we actually we're we're building things for people personally, and I, and I think this is really you know when I, when I think about like what's reclaimed secret sauce, I think it's about like we are very clear about talking about personal stake, but also building that within the idea of a, of a collective vision, right? So like not just having people do things out of like selflessness or like because it's good for the for the people or the collective, this like amorphous collective, but actually thinking about how is what they're fighting for or what they're building towards connected to their own personal experiences and how can we support each other in this vision where like we all understand like why it's important to us individually. Which is how socialist or left left wing organizing should proceed. It shouldn't be approaching people as atomized individuals. It should be approaching people, including its own leadership and members as people who are deeply embedded in in, in neighborhoods, communities, workplaces, et cetera. Yeah. And I would, I would even just like add to that. I, and I think that's really when we're talking about being like anti-capitalist and being like actually building like radical relationships with each other, like that is some of the conditioning we have to undo of like being that deep with each other and actually doing that digging of like, what is it that you're that's at stake for you? Like, and where does that come from, from your own personal story? And like, we're told not to do that, right? Like we're taught not to actually be that deep and relational with each other. So I think by, by doing that, that really is creating this alternative world where yeah, we, everyone can prosper and everyone has like these intimate, deep relationships with each other. Nikhil? I think it's worth emphasizing that, uh, you know, as, because it is, it is actually, it's strangely counterintuitive. I mean, it, it was actually counterintuitive for me. I mean, I think there's, you know, despite this deep tradition on the left of thinking about people's interests, about thinking about people's deep sort of like motivations for, for getting involved in politics, I think we, we broadly speaking, the left tend to think about beliefs or ideological notions as, as just sort of coming out of the ether. You can just you can just sort of find your way to them. Like we're just like brains on sticks. We're just precisely and you and and this you know and I uh, I'm a in my daily in my 
day job. I'm a writer. And so I, to some degree, I do have to believe that. And so I, you know, on they, some level you are a brain artist. You're right. Yes. And, <laughs> you're, also, you're also very trim. So. <laughs> Thank you. So, in, I mean, I quite resemble. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's some, but actually finding a sense in which your beliefs are not just your beliefs. They have deep emotional roots. They have roots in who you are, in where you grew up, in where, where you come from, the obstacles you faced. And then those, you know, those obstacles continue to be obstacles. The things that you, you know, the, the, the sort of the deepest part of yourself, just you, you find at the bottom of the self, you don't just find the self. It's not just private. You actually move out into the social world. And that, that's actually, you know, that's, that's, that is, that should be the tradition of the left. That is what it, what it is about. I mean, and, but it's actually, there's a way in which it's very easy to lose sight of that as, you know, in, in sort of intellectual or ideological terms. Well, and this hard public private distinction is also a core constitutive organizing feature of capitalism. So when we, if we reproduce that in organizing, we're not probably not going to do a great job challenging it. So I, I would also add to that that um, we push people to see that their stake is intertwined, right? We push people to have this vision of long-term liberation, and then we work our way backwards and also have like a shorter-term vision for um, how do we actually reach that? What are the stepping stones towards this end goal of like collective liberation and like the socialist utopia world where nobody is struggling, where there's no poverty, where there's no discrimination or racism? Um, but we also we also push people to think deeply about um, their stake and to politicize it in a way where we try to. Um, acknowledge that we have really deep shame around our personal experiences and that is a tool of control um, and we push people to turn that what we call like private shame into public anger um, as a way to mobilize people and to radicalize folks and I think another reason why we're particularly effective in developing leadership is we don't go to people and say hey we are socialists we say here are our ideals here are our values here's what we think the world is capable of looking like how do you feel about that? How does that apply to your life? Um, how does that affect you? How would the world look different if it was structured this way? Like what impact would it have on you personally? So I think we're actually um, pretty effective at radicalizing people as well and moving people's political analysis because we don't come in with our socialist hats on. Most of our leadership are socialists, um, but we would never call ourselves a socialist organization. We don't go around touting that. Like we're all proud of being socialist, but we also acknowledge that like, even though socialism is on the upswing in culture, if we go and we knock on doors in a working class community, um, and we say, hi, my name is Amanda. I'm your neighbor. I'm your socialist friendly neighbor. They'll shut the door in our faces. But if we say, how are you, how are you struggling to survive right now? What are the things that are really truly deeply impacting your life? Then we open a conversation and we're able to figure out what motivates that person and figure out how to craft a vision for a path to liberation for them. Well, that uh, provides a good connection to my next question, which is if you could explain a little bit about your door-to-door -door organizing method, which is deep canvassing. I would say our, our canvassing is unique in that like, when you say deep canvassing, like really thinking about, um, you know, in a short amount of time, like having a direct relational conversation with the person at the door. Um, and so and that's just like reading a script. 
And not just reading a script, yeah, which not a lot just of reading, canvassing is. Right, is, just like is, reading the words off the script, like, hey, would you vote for this person? Okay, bye. You know, like we actually try to have a real conversation with the person about like, you know, before we even dig into talking about the candidate, asking them like, what are you personally affected by? Um, what are the issues that affect you when it comes to issues? I mean, talking about Krasner, right? Like I did, you know, countless canvassing uh, in West Philly, uh, in like deep West Philly, where seven out of 10 houses, like someone had either been personally incarcerated or knew someone who had been personally incarcerated. And so and before I even got to talking about Krasner, right, I had a conversation with them about how are you affected by the issue of mass incarceration? Is this an issue that's important to you? Um, what, you know, do you feel like, how do you, what do you think about safety? You know, like really asking these worldview questions um, that folks aren't conditioned to really like have, a, you know, talk about um, with someone at their door, but they're hungry for it. You know, like people are, are hungry to talk about their experiences and talk about how they've been personally affected by these issues. Um, and we're able to just really build a connection that is unique, um, that people resonate with. I think it, it's how we're able to connect, um, you know, our, our goals of trying to get, you know, candidates elected to like the personal experiences of people, um, that are in these like working class communities that are affected by the issues, but just have never had someone talk with them about it in a direct way. Nikhil? There's just one that, you know, we were aided, I think, in this, and this is maybe my personal experience in in this sort of structural nature of American politics, which is that when we were campaigning for district attorney, not many people knew that there was a campaign for district attorney. So there was actually this odd way in which you could approach people at the door, and if you mentioned that there was a campaign, they would more often than not not know. And you instead could could then engage them on the question of criminal justice directly. And then, it, you know, the other thing that, that is true here is that this is a universal issue in, I mean, it's not just a universal issue in a city like Philadelphia, but is in fact just a universal issue in a society completely defined by mass incarceration. So people who, you know, there is in fact an incredibly high proportion. Philadelphia is the most incarcerated major city. So, but... It affects, it completely misshapes and deforms and is intended to deform the entire polity of the city. So it, it, it drains our schools, it segregates, it, it, it's, it's violent, it brutalizes entire communities. It, it, it is this looming shadow over, over everything. And that is, and then, and people can and It's not can separate from that. political economy. It plays a found fundamental role in doing a lot of things, including disciplining and controlling the people you know on the 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 very margins of the lowest rungs of a labor of a of a neoliberal labor market it's not it's it's not something apart from any of this and and as everyone in this room knows there's been a lot of kind of surreal debates on the left uh recently and there are are some socialists with this very narrowly economistic conception of how the world works, where 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 class issues narrowly construed are are these universal issues that one can have universal demands around, whereas dealing with things like racism, sexism, mass incarceration, immigrant rights, whatever, are are particular. But it seems like what what reclaim is doing is is taking on class and racial justice and women's liberation issues all at once. And in doing so, attempting to build a more universal coalition. 
Um, and I think I think a case in point here in Philadelphia is is the difference, frankly, with all due, due credit to the Bernie campaign between the more narrow Bernie coalition, which lost big in Philly, and a Krasner coalition that won really decisively. To speak to that, I think um, so we. We organize with the understanding that we are operating in a system of racial capitalism where gender, race, capitalism are all intertwined systems where you can't really parse them apart in most scenarios. Like you might find a few scenarios where they function separately, but we um, we don't ask people like I wouldn't. I want to say I have to decide whether I'm a woman today and a poor person tomorrow. Um, I'm both at all times. Right. Um, so we ask people to think about themselves and how these systems like not just intersect, but are so deeply wound together that we can't separate them. Um, we don't ask people to like choose between their identities and how they feel oppressed in that day. We recognize that like all of these systems work, work together to uphold, like to uphold these systems of oppression. And that's simultaneously an analytical matter and, uh, an organizing matter. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is the fact that you know one of the one of the aspects of of our organizing model uh, is that we when we approach people personally we have to you know you, you find you find these sort of deep sources of 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 uh pain of uh, uh you know trauma uh, you know you you find you people people have really fucked up you know situations and like and 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 you just and you're and you're you're sort of narrating that you're recovering that you're you're recuperating it to some degree and and then it needs to be politicized so there is there is an analytic angle there is i mean there i mean there is an analysis there is i you know a, a sort of a, a, we have values and we have beliefs and we're constantly we 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 have those now but we're you know of course the personal stories inform those. And so they're constantly being revised. I think there's just, you just want an accurate picture of the world. I think it's just bizarre to approach it categorically. I mean, we, we've, it's not to deny that there's just, we've learned a lot and we've studied a lot, but I mean, it would just, it, you know, we've, the left has lost quite badly. I don't think in many years. And so I just, it would just be bizarre to, to, to sort of ignore the fact that, that just, you know, speaking to people and learning from them and, is 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 precisely just going to just inquiring and like just listening that's that's the that's one of the sources of renewal for for you know not just left for our society and trying to ensure that one's politics and one's organizing programs reflects the wholeness of people's lived experiences because that's that's politics precisely i mean that's that that's who we are you just you have to you you have to know yourself essentially you and you and if you know yourself you you know that you know that that's what you know, that's that's you understand politics a little bit better, I think. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, really honoring our full selves and our full oppressions, but also like really depicting a full world that we want to live in. Right. Like it's not just a world that's free of capitalism. It's a world that's free of capitalism, of, of racism, of sexism, of all of these isms that are keeping us ensnared. Um, and those fights are so deeply intertwined. Um, you, you just cannot end one, one without the other. Right. Like the devaluation of black bodies was like the foundation of this country and the foundation of capitalism in this country. Like you cannot decouple those two things and you can't create a world where ending those two things are decoupled. Rick, you, you uh, lead reclaims criminal justice organizing work, correct? Yep. Um, 
say a little bit about where you all are focusing after, now that Krasner is district attorney, what your priorities are in terms of policy and in terms of of using criminal justice organizing as a way to to base build and to diversify the base of reclaim. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think to I'll, I'll speak to to Krasner first. Um, so I think Krasner was really um, a a beautiful moment in that we had an ally in an office that was so for so long like op- not just oppositional but like very much like adversarial, right? Like. We had never the idea of community organizations. The total embodiment of the enemy yes. of everything like, we stand for like, in the world. You know, <laughs> like I went to the DA's office, you know, um, right, you know, not too soon after he got elected, and, and even it's like it is it is an impenetrable fortress. Like you're not meant to be in that place unless you're a prosecutor. Um, so the idea of community organizations being able to have this level of access with someone who is literally the the person that is determining how long someone's going to spend in jail um, is... And if they're going to go to jail. And if they're going to go to jail in the first place, right, is is so um, unheard of. Um, and so it really provided us a, a canvas to figure out, like, what does it look like to hold power with an ally in office who has so much power around, um, yeah, one of the issues that affects Philadelphia and so through that, you know, one of the things we've really be we've really been experimenting with is this idea of, of co-governance, right? So like, what does it look like to um, actually build out a policy vision with someone that we got elected? And so figuring out how are we building a platform around issues like bail, like, uh, like again, like immigrants' rights, uh, around the rights of sex workers, um, and thinking about which of these things are actually going to result in the most incarceration. So um, one of the things that came out early was like his bail policy memo. Um, it was this memo that his office released that had a plethora of misdemeanor and felony charges for which that office would no longer, the prosecutors would no longer recommend bail um, for for the defendant. And that immediately resulted in a 25% increase in the amount of people who were being released. Really, I think ROR. ROR. Yeah. On, on their own reconnaissance. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so if that, you know, there's been that, and if you actually look at the stats at that time period for Philadelphia jails, the rate, the, the rate of people coming out of jail, like literally doubled. So we literally doubled the amount of people that were being released from Philadelphia area jails. Um, and we just been building on that. Like, what is it, you know, how are we developing policy, um, with an elected official, which is just a continuing experiment. Um, and then to speak to the the base building, I mean, as Nikhil said, you know, Philadelphia is the most incarcerated large incarcerated large city. I think the stat is like one out of three or one out of four Philadelphians have a record. And you know, going back to this idea that all of these issues are, issues are connected, um, the idea of criminal justice reform is very much connected to economic justice, right? Like these people literally can't get a job um, because people have decided that they are not trustworthy, that they aren't worthy of of gaining capital. Of holding capital um so in our organizing right like going back to talking about personal stories um we really try to dig into and this is particularly you know when we're working with folks who have been formerly incarcerated or have touched the criminal justice system um there's so much shame around a lot of those experiences because of the like second class status that our society tries to um attribute to people who who have gone through our system um, that 
at like before we even get to analysis and thinking about like actually figuring out like what is you know what is the strategy for ending mass incarceration there's this initial work of like really politicizing and unpacking a lot of the shame that uh people have been told they need to carry as a result of of their their experiences um and then from that like really starting to do again that analysis of okay so um you know people in the room are juvenile lifers so they were you know they they got a charge of murder when they were like 15 and you know spent 30 years in jail um like you know what does it look like to to uphold that and to fight for for reform around like life without parole you know there are people in the in the room that have records and as a result can't get a job what does it look like to create a campaign around um trying to get more corporations to you know, hire people with with jobs um so really doing that work of connecting the personal experiences to two campaigns and from there you know taking problems and creating issue issue cuts out of them um has been a lot of the work that's happened in the criminal justice uh organizing that we've been doing and so through that uh one of the campaigns we've started is this thing called participatory defense um which is essentially uh a community organizing model where people who have a loved one or a community member that's currently facing a trial, um, they can come into this like hub that'll be at a community center or a church or wherever and actually be walked through the entire process of a court case from arraignment through bail hearing through sentencing. Um, and even just uh, illuminating the different stages of a trial and even telling someone like you can sit in on a bail hearing <laughs> has its own, uh, instrumental uh, like influence on the case right like judges and prosecutors are not used to being observed actually being held accountable um so this is it's been another space where we've just even just illuminating like how the system works and how it affects people um has gone a long way towards increasing more more incarceration and one other thing i wanted to note before we get away from this in terms of the the power of these kind of conversations can have in terms of uh, of organizing and, and winning power is that during the DA primary, uh, if I have these numbers right, Reclaim found that 64% of 18 to 35-year-olds that you and other organizations canvassed came out to vote compared to just 29% of those who weren't canvassed. And this is the next, the other stat's really interesting because it shows that while mass incarceration is a particularly intense injustice in black communities that it's also something that working class white people were, were very receptive to. You found that in white working class areas that were canvassed, Krasner won an average of 48% of the vote in the primary compared to just 20% in areas that weren't. I don't know if you could say a little, there was an article in N plus one, I believe it was about uh, one reclaim members experience. Um, canvassing in, in Port Richmond, maybe? Um, so I ran a good portion of our field program in the primary. Um, and what we found was that everybody has a stake in transforming the criminal justice system, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender. Um, and we did a lot of work moving white people to see their stake in that. Um, and like you said, like the numbers speak for themselves. Um, I personally uh, ran our portion of the field program in South Philly and Northeast Philly. Um, and what we found was that when you talk about um, the, the issue of criminalizing drug addiction, 
um, when you talk about um, the civil forfeiture, which was like a central piece of the campaign. Um, which he, is when which is when prosecutors basically just steal your shit without even having to prove, without even the person being criminally convicted. Yeah, or steal your family shit. Yeah, um, we found that people like people were like, wow, that's a great injustice. And like, this has happened to me and this has happened in my community, especially in Northeast Philadelphia where the opioid epidemic is raging. Um, We also moved like our volunteers who at the time um, were largely like young white folks um, to see their personal stake in the criminal justice, in reforming the criminal justice system. Um, So when I was on the doors and you can't see me, I'm a young white woman. Um, when I was on the doors, I would talk about how I, as a, somebody who's experienced sexual violence, have never felt safe reporting any of those crimes or asking for any sort of support. And these are conversations that I would have on the doors with people and ask them, like, what does it what does it mean for you to feel safe in your community? And what we found in neighborhoods, regardless of the demographics of the neighborhoods, that people don't feel safe with more police in their communities. Um, they actually feel less safe. So we talked about um, community policing. We would talk about um, treating drug addiction as a health issue and not a crime. Um, and overwhelmingly, people all over the city found that really appealing. Yeah, and, and I would just add to that, um, like in that work, we're also really challenging this dominant narrative, right, that that black and brown people are like dangerous. They're criminals. They're the ones that are that are. Um, filling up jails and like you know there there are there are stats right that black and brown people are being deliberately targeted by mass incarceration but there are working class white folks that are also um not benefiting from police brutality from over incarceration from over prosecution and black people are no doubt disproportionately incarcerated under mass incarceration but in absolute numbers there are still an enormous number of white people in prison right so it's like um there when and 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 partly I think that it's a, it's a tough needle for the left to thread on this because we both want to emphasize the racial injustice aspect of, of mass incarceration, which is a core feature. It is no doubt motivated and rooted in uh, like profound racism in this country. But if we characterize mass incarceration as exclusively a black issue, um, how does a white working class person whose own family is touched by mass incarceration, how does that lead to them politically process Mm-hmm. It has a political issue. Yeah, and we're and we're actually like subconsciously reinforcing the narrative, right? If and black saying, criminality, right? Actually, if we're saying if it's a if it's a black and yeah. brown issue, and we're saying yeah, black and brown people commit crimes, right? And, and you don't need to worry about this, or you just need to support mass incarceration, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's like it's really, um, yeah, it's a tricky thing to thread. And I think you know one of the things we also try to to incorporate when we're doing this canvassing um, is just like the the enormous cost of mass incarceration, right? Like I think the stats in Philadelphia, it's like $150 a day um, to have someone uh, in, a, in a Philly jail. And it, and it equates to like tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and you know, at one point, Philadelphia jails were, I think at, a, at an occupancy of like 9,000, right? So you just, you're spending like tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and it's not making people safer or, or and it's like taxpayer money, you know, there's, all of these things where you can really create an intersectional narrative around it. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of the podcast that you're listening to right now. 
One way we keep the show up and running is by advertising books that our listeners might want to buy from publishers like Verso and University of California Press. If you yourself work at a publisher and want to advertise books on the show, or you're an author of a book that you think that your publisher should be advertising here on The Dig, please email me at daniel.denver at gmail.com. My last name is D-E-N-V-I-R. I can say with some confidence that there is likely no other podcast out there where you can find so many people who want to buy left-wing intellectual and academic books. So please advertise with us. Thanks. And now back to the show. I want to talk about uh, the Reclaims base. The home studio that we're sitting in in South Philly right now is, uh, I think it's important to point out, fairly diverse. We have a we have a white woman, a black and multiracial man, an Indian American man. Um, so the and this is leadership of the organization, and it's diverse leadership. But the way Holly Otterbein phrased it in the Enquirer was the lion's share of the group's electoral successes have occurred in gentrifying neighborhoods full of new young voters. Most of its members are also white, while the city is majority minority. Can it prevail? among a larger swath of the electorate. And for listeners who aren't in Philly or aren't familiar with Philly, the areas where you all have been the most successful so so far, if I understand correctly, are formerly heavily white working class areas that in recent years have seen an influx of, of young people, particularly South Philly and the River Wards. And so while the Krasner campaign makes it clear, and other things as well, makes it clear that your that your message is resonating, beyond your base. Can you explain a little bit what the current base is and and how and how you see expanding it in the future? We definitely had like measured success in uh those areas of Philly with Krasner, but also like, you know, we canvassed in deeper West Philly, which is a blacker older neighborhood, and every single division we canvassed there had also uh went for Krasner. Um and so you know, we do have this hot spot of of leadership and base that are in some of these these changing neighborhoods, um, and you know that can that you know that results in our base having like so, you know some folks that lean it, and it leans younger and whiter, um, but you know we also have you know under our criminal justice work, it is majority people who are directly uh, impacted by this issue of mass incarceration. They have uh, you know either they have a criminal record or someone that that's they're the family member of someone who's formerly incarcerated. And actually, we have uh, two staff organizers, uh, one person, uh, Akeem Sims, and another person we've just recently hired um, that are formerly incarcerated themselves. Um, and I would say that that base uh, of people is like, you know, a it is a small section, but a growing part of our of our membership and leadership. Um, and it's. You know, it, it's a it's a message that I think is becoming more resonant and we're becoming more intentional about developing, uh, you know, leadership that is diverse. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's a problem that I that feels kind of tricky for me personally as as a person who, you know, who's in leadership, who's who's a person of color, because a lot of times when I when I hear like, oh, it's majority white, I'm like, oh, I'm right here. Like, what, hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Um, and a lot of people in leadership feel the same way, um, you know, who are who identify as, as people of color. And so um, it's this catch 22 where sometimes, you know, when 
we hear that it it makes us it actually makes us feel marginalized, which then um, makes people not want to enter the space. You know, like by like pointing out thing and by pointing out the thing, it can kind of reinforce the the trend. If that makes sense. I would just add to that that um, it, the founding of Reclaim was from the Bernie Sanders campaign, which, as we know, um, had more of a class analysis and really invigorated a lot of younger white folks. Um, so our base in the beginning was majority of white. And as we've gone through time, we've been really intentional about investing in and building the leadership of people of color. And um, like through the work that we've been doing, we have been like really um, like I think – the ter- I, I want to use the term visually diversifying because I think people forget about all the other different types of diversity and they just think about race. Yeah. Um, right. But we have a really diverse economic swath. We have a yeah. really diverse gender swath. We have uh, people who, like myself, were born and raised in Philadelphia in a white working class neighborhood. And we also have people who are transplants. Um, so I think oftentimes we get painted with a really broad brush. Um, and people in, in the beginning of Reclaim dubbed us often as Bernie Bros. And I was like, hello, I'm not a Bernie bro. I am a woman. <laughs> and also don't reduce my politics to Bernie broism. And that's the uh, sort of thing that sparked the whole Bernie made me white like thing on yeah, when it was just yeah. like this when when I think it was the media that identified like Hawaii as another all white state that went for major, heavily mm-hmm. white state that went to Bernie. <laughs> it's like Hawaii's yeah. majority non-white. Yeah. <laughs> but we um we often like I think we often like have this brought up in interviews and like it's something that we're really intentionally trying to change because like we want to be representative of the city of Philadelphia because like this is where we're organizing. Um and I think there also are like barriers in organizing to a lot of like demographics of folks um so like we're really intentional about providing free childcare at every meeting that we have so that parents can get involved that people with young children can get involved that young mothers single mothers can get involved um and we're also really intentional about like where we have our meetings and who's accessible to you often see a lot of organizations having meetings in places like center city that is inaccessible to the majority of folks. We're also really intentional about making our meeting times accessible or also really intentional about having like hour long meeting max because we don't want to waste your time. Um, So I think like this is something that like we've worked on, but I think we also, um, we also are like, I think doing a pretty good job of it. Um, And I don't want to erase the work of like all of our comrades of color in the organization that really are deeply driving the organization, especially our leadership, which is, I think, like pretty diverse and representative of the city. I think the worst thing that can happen in in organizations sometimes that's clearly not happening in Reclaim is when people are not as representative as they want to be. They get they get both internally and from critics outside the group get like hung up in kind of like a guilt guilty way about it, which is not and helping they start anyone. Blaming the constituents, like why aren't they showing up for our thing? We're doing everything right, and that's mm-hmm. not that's not the answer, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there's obviously a danger in being tokenistic, uh, and I, which I think is 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 you know rampant on on in 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 the in this sort of discourse. You know, the other aspect of it. I mean, Rick already broached this, but if you you know, you you were we're we're in the process of of, you know, I think something has has actually said, you know, there is actually a, a kind of um, substantive difference, I think, in in how we now approach organizing ver- versus to some degree what what we did learned in the Bernie campaign or what I learned for sure, 
um, which was to some degree to approach these particular issues in certain kinds of categorical terms or, or you know, pres- presuming the kind of universal significance of, of certain policies, which is not to diminish the, the, the true achievement of them. And, and some of them do, in fact, have universal significance, healthcare, et cetera. But, you know, what I think is if you start to meet people where they're at on certain issues, um, you, I mean, uh, if you meet, start to meet people where they're at, the issues will disclose themselves as, you know, at, and, and, and they will, attri- they do affect a diverse group of people. So let's say you talk about housing in, you know, I think we're, we're, Reclaim is currently sort of working on that, developing that. I mean, there's, there is a, a sort of race blind or, you know, a sort of undiverse way to think about this and to think about it as this issue of zoning and development. And like, that's, you know, that's sort of the kind of principal way to, to sort of discuss this, this question. Or you've focused on the fact that, you know, the, 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 that, you know, most of the people who are on the waiting list for, for PHA housing are people of color and you have, you know, and, and, and poverty is like a rampant issue that disproportionately is, is a, is, is black and brown. And, and people can't, you know, they they get evicted at, at higher rates. They get, um, they're they're just their building code is like there's just no real way of enforcing, you know, the just the sheer safety of people's buildings. And this is, and if you talk if you talk to people on that level, that is that that is an issue that is diverse. That is that whose whose base is whose potential base is diverse. Whose potential, you know, the the subject in that question is is a diverse subject. And that that I think is. You know, I think that's that's essentially where we end up. That we that we 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 go to the very root. I mean, literally where people live, literally where people are, are you know, are or they you know that and that can be a cell, that could be uh, their their crumbling home, that could be their you know their their schoolroom where they're they're I mean they where they where they eat. I mean, we're 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 every sort of institution of society. I, I think it's also worth reflecting upon the. The, the fact that the base that Reclaim started out with and that many other ascendant left groups around the country started out with of disproportionately young, downwardly mobile people from middle class backgrounds, that's not to be discounted. That is an important segment of the population right now that's being radicalized. And I think it's particularly interesting in, in Philly because in some way what Reclaim represents is that is that young people, young maybe college-educated people who are in, in encountering a world as adults that they weren't maybe told they were gonna? I'm a college dropout. Yeah, but that these young people have turned out to be the opposite of what the the prophets of the new young hip city had imagined they would be. You know, I think the idea was that they were going to be just these young urban professionals who would put forward this kind of anti-machine urban neoliberalism, um, which is not what's happening. And in fact, there is a there's a group in 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 Philly that represents that sort of perspective that seemed like the young college educated new people to Philly group. And uh hilariously enough they're called Philly 3.0. And can you explain a little bit about what they who they are, what they advocate, and how you've decisively defeated them in various fights? So I think what we're seeing here is that there are different um, young involved groups in Philadelphia. And 
um, organizations like Reclaim, they, we assert a political analysis and we say, here is who the enemy is um, and it's corporations, it's big money interests, it's corporate interests, and it's these people who and, and entities that are extracting our wealth or who are basically shafting us at every turn that they can. And they're doing it in a really intentional way. And then you have other organizations who are non-ideological, or at least they present themselves as such. And they say, well, we just need change. We need change for change's sake. And we need to- Which pits old residents against new residents. Yes, yes. And I think, um, and that's the beauty of some of our analysis in that we, we- craft a multi-generational message that the older folks are also getting screwed over by these same people. And um, like, there's a reason why your social security benefits are being threatened. There's a reason why we're being uh, demonized as these lazy millennials. And it's, and it's because um, of these corporate interests and these like neoliberal institutions and these right-wing institutions that are, that are essentially further dividing and conquering us and we're saying we're saying it's not left versus right it's not old versus young it's bottom versus top and you need to join us in this fight yeah in in a way it points to a sort of dangerous uh sort of sort of unexpectedly dangerous moment for for uh, movements of of social movements in general which is that you know this kind of broad progressivism i mean it is the danger of the word progressive in 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 any it, it just that it it i mean and you know we use it and but it's it is it is now becoming rather indistinct and it's becoming a kind of floating signifier in certain ways so that you uh there i mean i think it's going to be really big in 2020 we're just going to see all these candidates who are progressive and in a way that's a sort of victory for the left that they then have to um they then have to they feel compelled to adopt certain policies that you know or, or at least nominally to do so but they're actually and able- more even more so to sort of be representatively diverse in and of themselves which is important but they're going to try to pretend it's sufficient yeah exactly and, and that it's that it's it's adequate in itself is a kind of is a you know and and i think you know that's the we're seeing that we're seeing that in philadelphia i mean we're seeing that it's actually a kind of strange byproduct of the of the Trump election that though it has motivated and mobilized many, you know, and, and many different kinds of many people, I mean, just thousands of people, um, there is this way in which people are trying to take advantage of a certain kind of indistinctness that we're all just against Trump. And I think this is true of various, you know, groups that are that are mobilizing young, the sentiment of young people uh, that, you know, they, they, the, the, dis, the distinction that has to be drawn is that who are you prioritizing? Like, who are the people in your movement? Who are the subjects of your movement? Who are the, you know, if you, if you're focusing on, on sort of the, the long, you know, if you're just focusing on, you know, the, 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 the person in charge or the, you know, like you're, you're, you also need to think about who you're, you know, what, what groups you're kind of focusing on. Are you starting with the priorities of social movements or, or not? You know, and that's that's the fundamental distinction, and that's where people have integrity. That's essentially where Larry Krasner had integrity. He had integrity among social movements when he started, and then many people ran who who seemed to espouse the same sorts of values, but there was no real reason to believe them. They had no real. They didn't have as much credibility, or or, or none at all. Twenty nineteen elections, the the mayor and city council are up for a vote. I assume that's the next electoral thing on Reclaim's radar. What can you share about your plans? 
right now we're doing a strategic power analysis of the races that are going on. And there are several very exciting movement candidates who I, as an individual, am personally excited about. Um, we have Tonya Baugh running out in Northwest slash North Philly um, as a movement candidate. Um, there's several really exciting candidates running for at large. Um, and I will say again, me personally, I'm excited about um, like Justin DeBerdinas and Helen Gim and Erica Amarone, who is the executive director of Juntos. We're figuring out how we're orienting ourselves as an organization, and the organization is made of many individuals who are excited about them. But right now we're strategizing around how do we recreate this Krasner victory in a way where the left and progressive labor and community organizations are able to move in a cohesive fashion to take real governing power in the city. And this, this is a really big question for us right now because we need to move an issues pr uh, platform priority um, to touch upon what Nikhil was just saying. Um, that really prevents a huge organizing opportunity for us so we can say, show us not just what you say you believe and what you say you will do, but show us where you've been. And we're also able to pick these very controversial but possible um, policy priorities uh, so that we can use them as a deciding factor and kind of a measurement of where do these candidates really stand? Because I think we'll, in this, especially in this at-large race, we'll see a lot of candidates dubbing themselves as the progressive candidate. And a lot of them have come out of nowhere. And a lot of them don't have roots in the movement. A lot of them... Um, have different priorities and a lot of them are being put up by some business interest. So a lot of what we're going to have to do is move as a collective left, Reclaim Philadelphia and all of our organizing allies and comrades, and figure out how exactly do we redefine what is politically possible? How do we prioritize housing and education and mass liberation? Um, while also making sure that what these candidates are saying and doing is genuine and that they will be accountable to us as a movement. What what does it look like to have like like power like real electoral like governing power um, coming from either candidates that come out of our movements or candidates that have no choice but to to agree to our agenda because of the amount of political heft that we have as a broad left movement in Philadelphia like to me that's that's what I'm excited about like not just having um, you know like like one lone ally. In, in a political arena, but having like an actual cohort of people that can that we can conspire with to develop a vision for a new Philadelphia. I want to ask about the name Reclaim Philadelphia. I think it's a great name in the sense that it speaks to this deep American belief that's pretty widely shared across different segments of the population in recovering something great that's been lost. And this may be strategically wise and good messaging, but it's also on one reading sort of empirically wrong in the sense that America was never great or Philadelphia was. And it was in fact claimed. Never great. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was never claimed. It was um, by, by, by anyone we want to have a claim by at least. Um, and so it's an interesting question. I think one that the left throughout American history has struggled with and it's, it's, how how should the left how can the left make make use of american history which is full of not only oppression but struggles of liberation and contradictions within those struggles and within the oppression it's just like a my question is 
what Philadelphia are you fighting to reclaim? So I think what we're, what ultimately we're trying to reclaim is we're reclaiming our power. And we're reclaiming power for poor working people, for people of color, for indigenous people, for women, people with disabilities, all of the people that have been left out of the equation as this super wealthy, super white, super male-oriented political elite has developed and has been sustained, I think, for the majority of the United States history. So we're not really talking about, like, Philadelphia as land. We're not talking about Philadelphia as an entity. Um, We're talking about, like, the reclamation of power and the reclamation of, like, our values and a reclamation of the direction of building a Philadelphia that is just and equitable and that includes all of us. It also doesn't have to be thinking about it now reclaiming something in some chronological sense that existed in time. It can be like reclaiming something to its rightful place, even if it's never quite been there before. Yeah, it does speak to, you know, I think you you mentioned the kind of uh, downwardly mobile, young, uh, sort of precariat, you know, in in that in that jargon. But, you know, there is there is, I think, a broad intergenerational multi, you know, kind of diverse sense of betrayal. I think that that actually is, and the betrayal is, is not is not that we were pro, you know we were promised jetpacks or something. It wasn't it wasn't just it's not just a very specific sense of like a of a dream being betrayed. It's actually a it's a it's sort of a vague sense that like we have there 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 our our society could be better. A quicker, deeper life runs beneath this one. This is this is the kind of deep emancipatory idea that that I think is behind behind the phrase that. Something about about the society that we have inherited, that we that we emerge into, that we that we grow up with, that we have now, has betrayed us. Has betrayed who 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 we could be. What what kind of what kind of society we we could live in. We could you know we, we this is this is the, this is I think the sense of of where one one must rise up and one must reclaim something. Nikhil Saval, Amanda McElmurray, and Rick Krajewski. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Nikhil Saval, Rick Krajewski, and Amanda McElmurray are, amongst other things, leaders with Reclaim Philadelphia. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once remarked after noting that nowhere is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review while you're there. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. 